This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis, chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. Here now these words. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every crawling thing on the ground. Then God said, I now give you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds, and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food to all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. To everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God for the people of God. I feel as if I have already been to church. How about you? Uh, what a great day already so far. It has been a blessing. Last week, we launched into a sermon series called The God and the Bleachers. And I'll mention a little bit more about that at the end of our time together. But essentially what I got to do last week is I got to tell my story. Today, I'm actually going to tell our story. And in order to tell our story, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need five volunteers this morning, and there are two requirements. Requirement number one, you need to be able to stand up here on stage for between 10 to 15 minutes. Requirement number two, we film this worship service to put out online. So if you're in the witness protection program or you're wanted for something, I would stay in your seats. But that being said, I need five volunteers. I got any help out here? All right, great. Come up here. If you sit right there on that, that pew for me, that'd be great. Come on, sir. Thank you. Where else? Where are we going? Where are we going? Come on. Yes, ma'am. Great. Great. Right over here. Yes, sir. Wonderful. 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 I need one more. Thank you. Right back here. That's great. Five volunteers. If you all could have a seat along these pews right here, that would be wonderful. And as they are getting situated, would you join me in a word of prayer? This moment, oh God. This moment is a moment that can change the world forever. This moment is a time pregnant with possibility. And so we have come. We've come to sing your praises. We've come to forget for just a few moments about ourselves and turn our eyes upon the Christ. We ask that you would fill this space with your Holy Spirit, that you would drench us with the power of that Spirit, and that we would leave this place transformed by your word to go and change the world. In the name and to the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I am the baby of four children. Two of my older siblings are sisters, and very much like waterboarding, they used to make me watch the sound of music a lot. And there's this scene in The Sound of Music in which Fräulein Maria says to the Von Trapp children when trying to teach them to sing, you must start at the very beginning. 
for it's the very best place to start. So if we're going to tell our story together this morning, we've got to start at the beginning. And the good news is, turns out the Bible starts with those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Come here, creation. Come here, right here. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on, right there. Let me tell you what, let's... Let's get you right back here so everybody can see you just fine. If you could stand right here, that'd be perfect. Right there. All right. There you are, sir. God says, let there be light, and there is light. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we get, we get two perspectives on the creation story, in part because God is bigger than any one perspective. Yes? And so we get two cre- creation perspectives. In Genesis chapter 1, God is kingly. God is orderly. God says things, and those things happen. Uh, and God, God creates in this orderly fashion. Did you know that in the six days of creation, there are, on the seventh day God rested, in the six days of actual creation, there are two cycles of creation? Did you know that? In the first cycle, days 1, 2, and 3, God creates spaces. God creates space for light and dark on day one. On day two, God creates the space in the sky and a space in the sea. On day three, God creates land. Then God goes back. On day four, God populates the light and dark with the sun, moon, and sky. The sun, moon, and stars. On day five, God populates the air with birds and the sea with fish. On day six, God calls forth every living creature and concludes this experiment called creation according to Genesis chapter 1 by saying, let us make humanity in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And one of the things I love about this Genesis chapter 1 story, the beginning of our tale, is that on day 1 when God creates the light and dark, God says it's good. On day two, when God creates sky and sea, God says it's good. On day three, when God creates land, God says it's good. On day four, when God creates the sun and the moon, God says it's good. On day five, when God creates birds and fish, it's good. But on day six, when God creates humanity, God says it is very good. That's Genesis chapter one. God is kingly. God is well-ordered. But there's also Genesis chapter 2, which is just a different perspective on the creation event. And in Genesis chapter 2, God is much more anthropomorphic. God looks like one of us. And what God does is God kneels down and plays in the dirt. In that way, God is almost childlike in Genesis chapter 2. I have a three-year-old daughter named Parker. Did you know all three-year-olds are artists? They are. And if given the opportunity... Their chosen canvas will be dirt. Parker loves to play in the dirt. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that God kneels down and plays in the dirt and forms the first human and then blows the ruach, the breath of life, into those lungs. There is uh, a a group of people out there that think that the people who wrote Genesis chapter 2 were were farmers because uh, the man, the Adam comes from the dust of the earth, the Adama. There's an inherent connection between the two. But the point is to say that in Genesis chapter 1, we get this idea of God as kingly and lifted up. In Genesis chapter 2, we see a God who is uh, much more uh, engaged with, with the creation. But what we see in these two chapters is a God of remarkable love. 
And the story of creation goes perfectly. We walk with God and we talk with God. The story of creation goes perfectly. Right up until the third chapter. And then that pesky snake shows up. And an apple or a kiwi or whatever, we don't know what the fruit was. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And, and, and within three chapters, this story that was so so full of possibility looks like it's going to be a tragedy. But God says, don't worry. Don't fret. I got an idea. What I'm going to do is, I'm going to make myself a family. Come here, Abraham. Right here. As I mentioned last week, God says, Abraham, number the stars in the heavens. Count the sands on the seashore. That's how many offspring you're going to have. (laughs) Don't drop the babies. (laughs) You can't go to college now. So... So God creates this family. But the, the problem with it is that at least in the beginning of the family, God gives a promise to Abraham and his wife Sarah and says, you're going to have a child. But, but Abraham's 70 and Sarah's 60. And they weren't exactly sure how that was going to work. So they waited and waited and waited. And decades later, nothing had happened. So they decide... They decide to take things into their own hands. And Abraham has a conversation or an experience with a woman named Hagar at his wife's urging. And he and Hagar have a baby named Ishmael. And then a few more years go by. And finally, when Abraham is a 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, finally God does what God always does. God fulfills God's promise. And Abraham and Sarah give birth to a little boy named Isaac, which means laughter, because it brought joy to their lives. Now, there are some people in this room who think that, excuse me, your families are dysfunctional. I would submit that you should read Genesis. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar can't get along, and so Sarah and Abraham push Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They come out of the womb fighting with each other. That's what the Bible tells us. Jacob has a whole mess of sons. His oldest sons uh, sell his youngest son into slavery, put blood on his jacket, take it to his dad and say, sorry, he's dead. I just want to reiterate, you think your family's messed up? (laughs) Read Genesis. Because by the end of the opening book of the Bible, this experiment called a family of God looks once again tragic for the people find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God says, don't worry, don't fret. I got another idea. 
Come here, Moses. Right here. Perfect. There you go. There you go. So God leads God's people out of Egypt. It's, it's a remarkable story in which the living God conquers Pharaoh. And the, 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 the army is at the bottom of the sea. The people of God are led forth into freedom. And God says, this time, with this covenant, I'm, I'm going to give the people something new. I'm going to give them commandments. I'm going to give them a set of instructions by which to live their lives, not to steal their fun. When I was a little kid, I always thought the Ten Commandments were about stealing everything fun, right? But the Ten Commandments aren't about stealing fun. They're about giving us a framework in which we can live the most abundant life. And so God says, I'm I'm going to give you these commandments. And Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to go up on top of the mountain, leave the people in the valley, but you go up on top of the mountain. And Moses goes up on top of the mountain. And there he communes with God for 40 days. And finally, God gives him this law. And everything goes perfectly. Right up until the point that Moses comes down off the mountain. When he gets down in the valley, these people who had just been led to freedom by God have already taken the wealth they brought with them from Egypt. They were melting it down to make into graven images that they could worship as idols. (sighs) Once again, our story doesn't seem terribly hopeful. But God says, don't sweat it, man. I got another idea. I'll make a kingdom. Come, your highness. Right here. Perfect. It's a good look for you. Through a servant named Samuel, God locates and God anoints a boy, a child named David. Uh, In fact, the the word in Hebrew for anoint is the word Messiah, from which we get the word Messiah, because David was the first anointed one, and God makes a promise, a messianic covenant, in which God says, one of your descendants, David, is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so... David begins to rule. And in time, things go just perfectly until David steps out on his balcony one day and he sees this woman taking a bath. It's not her fault. Her name was Bathsheba, right? (laughs) David is overcome. He orders her to his chamber. And eventually, David ends up killing her husband so that he can have her. This is our story. God tries, we fail. God tries, we fail. God tries, we fail. God tries, we fail. Do I have any moms in here today? Moms? Mom, 
Thomas, have you ever had the experience of inviting your children to do something which they proceed not to do? Ever happened to you? No? No? Do this, and they don't do it. I said do this, and they don't do it. I said don't do this. I said do this, and they don't do it. Do this, and they don't do it. And you say, fine, I'll do it myself. Come here, Jesus. There you are. God sends Jesus Christ to the earth. The perfect embodiment of love. Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus teaches us in ways that are so beautiful we can't even understand to this day. Finally, ultimately, he teaches us what love looks like as he sacrifices himself. And in in the greatest part of the greatest story that's ever been told, on that final day, that day of resurrection, Jesus comes back from the grave and he conquers our single greatest fear death. This was our story. Wouldn't you agree? Creation, covenant, Jesus. God tries, we fail. God tries, we screwed up again. God tries, we screwed up again. God tries, we screwed up again until finally, out of options, God sends Jesus. Is this the story as you understand it as well? These people up here doing some work. Yes? Yes? Yes! This is the story, right? Now, here's the thing. I need to adjust the timeline a little bit. Because it turns out, Genesis is not the only place where the words in the beginning can be found. Those also happen to be the opening words of my favorite book of the Bible. The Gospel of John, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made. And eventually John chapter 1 tells us, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. What John tells us is that the story doesn't end with Jesus, The story begins with Jesus. So Jesus, I need you to take a walk down here for me, would you? All right. I didn't even coach them. They just did that. That was perfect. Thank you guys very much. Well done. And some of you are saying, well, this is is ridiculous. We all learned in Sunday school about the Trinity. And so if God was there in the beginning, of course Jesus and the Holy Spirit were there with him. But my friends, I need you to understand... This story cannot truly be told in a linear fashion, as we Westerners like to tell stories. The Bible tells us that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, we misunderstand our story if we think our story is that God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed until out of options God sent Jesus. God didn't get tricked into sending Jesus Christ to the earth. It wasn't that after the final covenant God looks at the earth and says, well, I've tried everything else. I guess I have to send my son now. We didn't force God to double down. God knew. 
God knew. God knew that the cost of creation would be the cross of Calvary. And God created anyway. It's not that we tried, God tried and we failed. And God tried and we failed. And God tried and we failed. And God tried and we failed until out of options, pulling out the divine hair at its roots, God sends Jesus. God knew. The covenants God put in place, they weren't to replace the Christ event. They were to prepare us for the Christ event. When one family would become a family of God open to everyone in the world, where one story of freedom will become everybody's story of freedom, where the promise made to God about a king, made by God about a king who would sit on the throne of Israel forever, would be a promise you and I could claim as we know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our story is not about a God who is reluctant. Our story is not about a God who got tricked. It's not that God tried and we failed over and over and over again until out of options He sent Jesus. God knew. God knew. God knew that the cost of creation would be great. It would be the cross of Calvary. And God created anyway, which brings us to one insurmountable question. Why would God do that? Before we answer that question, would you give God some praise for these wonderful volunteers behind me? You guys did great. Come on. If you want to set your props down here, you are welcome to do so. Just on those first pews there. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for your hard work. <clears throat> yeah, you, you know, you can hang on to it if you want to. <clears throat> we have a tendency to think As we revisit the story most of us have heard so many times, we have a tendency to think that God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed and God tried and we failed failed until God just had to send Jesus. It's not true. God knew all along how great the cost of creation would be. And God created anyway. Why? Why? This is important. And in order to answer the question, I need you to go on a trip with me. Some of you may want to close your eyes. Some of you don't have to. It's fine. I promise I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. That's not the way I roll, okay? I want you to go on a trip with me back in time. I want you to go back past 1856 where Ebenezer Church was founded, back past 1776, the foundation of our country, back past 1517, the Protestant Reformation, back through the Middle Ages and back through the Dark Ages, back to the time of Jesus and beyond, back through the kingdom history, back to David, back past Moses and Abraham, back past the flood, back to the moment of creation. And then I want to invite you to go back in time just a few more moments. And there you are, before God creates, standing there with God. And the reason that you're standing there with God, as silly as it may sound, is you are there to be an advisor to the Almighty. 
And the question on the table is simply this. Should God create? I wonder how you would advise God. Because there is a part of me that would want to say to God, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't do this. You, you can't, you can't do this. Because what we are going to do, you're going to give us all these blessings and we're going to ignore you. When a blessing is lost, we're going to scream at you. When you become the most vulnerable, we're going to kill you. Don't do this. I want you to imagine after God hears those words, I want you to imagine what the face of God looks like in your mind's eye. For me, it's a cross between Santa Claus and Charlton Heston as Moses. Some people see God and they think of Bob Marley, right? Whatever the face of God looks like to you, I want you to picture that face. And as you picture that face, I want you to imagine that those beautiful divine eyes close and that a shudder ushers across the face of God. As God thinks about all the pain that we'll cause each other. As God thinks about the lives that we'll waste. The people that will be hurt. As, as God, God thinks about tragedies like the Holocaust. And as God thinks about that day, that terrible Friday. And the sacrifice of His Son. And then I want you to imagine that the shudder passes from God's face. And that the same voice that in just moments will call the earth into being speaks your name. And the same hands that in just another moment will form the first humans from the dust of the earth, that hand raises from the divine side and it points right at your chest. And the living God says, Yes! Indeed, the cost of creation will be Great. But just look what I will get in return. Our story isn't the story of a God who tries and then we fail and God tries and we fail and God tries and we fail and God tries and we fail until out of options God sends Jesus. That's not our story. Our story is of a father who knew that the cost of creation would be unbelievably hard and who created anyway for one reason alone. Because it meant that the father would get to be with his children. That's your story. It's the story of a father who would bear any burden, climb any mountain, including one named Calvary, just to be with you. Said differently, the father loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
Last week, I started this series called The God in the Bleachers by telling my own story about how my whole life I thought about God on this bench of judgment and condemnation until my very atrocious basketball career when my mom showed up at every game and screamed at the top of her lungs from the bleachers, that's my boy. It sounded more like, that's my boy, but she screamed at every, every game. The point of my story is to tell you that I always thought God was angry at me until I came to understand what God was saying through the most important relationship of my young life, that I was God's beautiful and beloved child. And my point today is to tell you it's your story too. You're loved. You're loved by God. There's, there's really not a thing you could do about it. And some of you could say, well, that was your point last week. Well, that's my point again this week. Next week we are going to move on to something else. But I got to tell my story, and today I get to tell our story, and the point of our story is the same point as my story, and the point is love. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved no matter what. Last week, I handed out these bracelets. On one side it says God in the bleachers. On the other side it says love no matter what. I got a chance to give one away this week. I don't know if you got a chance to give one away this week, but I want to challenge you, if you did, take another bracelet with you this week. Until somebody asks you about it, and then give it away and come back, we'll give you another one. It's a reminder to you of who you are until such time as somebody asks you about it, and then it can be a reminder to them of who they are. There are some people in this room that I may never get a chance to see again, ever. Some of you I may get to see for the next 22 years. I pray you'll remember this. Because it's the point of everything. Your Father in Heaven loves you. Desperately and beautifully and perfectly. You're loved. And there's nothing you can do about it.